everybody. Welcome to the Edge Report. I'm Raven X, and alongside me, as always, I got Biggie, aka Ethan Tate, aka my upcoming NBA mock drafter. How you doing today? I'm good. Uh, I'm looking forward to the draft this coming week. I think it's gonna be some. Yeah, I think that in years past, we've heard a lot more about, like, different trades and, like, more talk about the prospects. Like, real talk besides Cade Cunningham and some Evan Mobley, it's been a pretty straightforward draft. Like, it's not many guys that people are just overall excited about. But, I mean, who knows? Diamonds in the rough come out all the time. And happy uh, you mentioned that because we are going to do a mock draft of the top 15 picks for the upcoming first round of the NBA draft. So make sure you guys stay tuned for that. Also, with regards to the NFL, is this the last dance for the Green Bay Packers? So much stuff has happened, and it just seems that when it comes to the Packers, the news never stops. So we're going to play that in believable or buffoonery. And I'm going to close out the show with my Money in the Bank 2021 recap. But before we get to any of that, please be sure to check out theXReport.net. I repeat, theXReport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow XReport writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast, our YouTube channel entitled The X Report. <clears throat> so starting this bad boy off, always got to plug stuff. Be sure to be on the uh, lookout for football fans because best offseason editions was posted within the next month or so. Ethan and I will be giving our 2021 fantasy football guide. And so just be on the lookout for that. Got a lot of good stuff coming. Speaking of good stuff coming, the NFL preseason is starting in just a couple of weeks. It will be the Pittsburgh Steelers taking on the Dallas Cowboys in the Hall of Fame game. Now, I know not everybody is like me and is excited about the preseason But I love the preseason, and one of the biggest reasons why is because it helps to determine positional battles where we find out who's going to be the starter, who's going to outperform who, and it's just a fun time. So to really kick off today's show, what we're going to do is rank the top five position battles that we are most excited to see. Ethan, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? I'll let you go. All right, bet. So, number five, I'm going to start off with quarterbacks. Broncos starting quarterback battle between Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater. I mean, honestly, with these two cats, you have a tale of the two extremes. You have Teddy Bridgewater, who doesn't really make too many mistakes, but mainly because he does not uh, take many chances. He's one of the, I don't want to say boring, but he's one of the most boring quarterbacks in the league in the sense of he's not really going to try to throw the ball deep. He's not really going to try to outsmart a defense. That man just does his job. And then you have Drew Locke, who is on the other side of the coin, who wants to go for that big play all the time, which in his rookie year, it looked kind of good. But once he got the chance to be a full-time starter, it proved to be very frustrating. So, honestly, it's interesting to see which way the Broncos go in the preseason will help determine that. Four. The Jags starting running back. I know that so many teams have a running back by committee, blah, blah, blah. But every team has a running back who's going to get the bulk of the carries. And right now, it should have been James Robinson continuing on from his great rookie year. But after drafted Travis Etienne with their second first round pick, it's going to be very interesting to see who is their lead back in Jacksonville. Uh, Number four, the Lions' number one wide receiver. If you look at the Lions receiving core, just a heads up, it's not good. There's Tyrell Williams, Brashad uh, Perryman, 
Um, they just drafted Amon St. Raw, Quintess Cephas, who they drafted last year. Needless to say, it's not much really going on. So, in terms of their starting receivers, I don't really think that is what matters. I think it's more so who's going to be the number one wide out there. Um, if I had to guess, I'd probably say St. Raw, just because I think he has the most potential and the highest upside. Everybody else, you pretty much know what they're going to be in the league, whereas St. Raw has a lot of opportunities he can build on after his career at USC. Number two, uh, the Patriots starting quarterback. Mac Jones versus Cam Newton. There are old heads and fans of the veteran who feel like, oh, once Cam gets more weapons on that offense and the Patriots defense got better, Cam is definitely going to start. I'm in the camp of, I think that Mac Jones is going to be starting much sooner than people anticipate. He pretty much just sets the prototype of what Patriots quarterbacks have been in these last 20 plus years. And whereas they had to make a lot of changes to their playbook to suit Cam, Mac Jones comes in and it's a perfect fit. But who's to say I know anything? Mac Jones could come into the preseason and play terrible while Cam could play great. I'm very interested to see how this battle goes because I feel like Bill Belichick really does not have a strong attachment to either. So I think that it could go either way. And then number one, it's probably not number one for a lot of people, but it's number one for me just because it involves my favorite team. But Ravens starting receivers, they have made a lot of moves this offseason, bringing in wideouts, uh, signing Sammy Watkins, drafting Rashad Bateman in the first round, uh, getting Tylen Wallace out of Oklahoma State. I think that was the third round as well, third or, third or fourth round. A lot of moves have been made in addition to already having Hollywood Brown there, Miles Boykin, Devin DuVernay, um, dude from SMU whose name is escaping, James Prochet. There's a lot of bodies at wide receiver, and while – Instantly, you hear that, and you don't instantly think someone with number one receiver written on them right now. I'm excited to see who ends up getting the start. So, those are the top five position battles I am watching ahead of the preseason. What about you? All right, for me, number five, I'm going to go with the Jacksonville Jaguars running back situation for everything that you just stated. James Robinson, he had a great rookie year, but they drafted Travis Etienne. He's the type of guy that you don't draft. And you don't potentially look at him as a starter. Number four, I'm going to go with the Rams running back situation. With due to the fact that um, Cam Akers got hurt, they have to assess the starting running back. And me personally, since he, I'm kind of biased because he played for my Titans. I'm leaning towards Derrick Henderson. But who's to say that one of those other guys in the backfield might step up and take that starting role? Number um number three, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with you with the Ravens receiving core. This has been a thing that's been a big question mark for them over the past couple of years. Yes, they have Hollywood Brown, but Hollywood Brown isn't a superstar talent in my opinion. They drafted Rashad Bateman. I think they drafted him with the hopes that he's gonna be the real number one. Let's see what he puts up in the preseason and during the regular season. Um, number two, I'm going to go with the number Broncos quarterback situation. Like you said, in my opinion, Teddy Bridgewater is like a slightly more athletic version of Alex Smith at this point in his career. He's not going to make the bad play, but he's not going to make a play that wins you games. And number one for me, simply because I like it, I'm a fan of this team, I have to go with Justin Fields and Andy Dalton. Um, I think Andy Dalton showed some signs of being a competent starting quarterback last season for the Cowboys before he got hurt. 
see that. Another one that was like borderline top five was the Titans cornerback situation. Well, between Janoris Jenkins, you still got Christian Fulton there, Caleb Farley. I'm interested to see how that plays out too. But I, I think the Broncos just edged that out just a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, every team in the league has an interesting position battle worth noting. I mean, probably the only one that isn't that intense may be the Bucks, just because you would assume every starter is still going to be the starter and they didn't really draft anybody to make any big replacements. But other than that, I mean, every team has some decisions to make. Speaking of decisions to make, you hit it right on the head with Cam Akers, who um, it was announced earlier this week, tore his Achilles, effectively ending his 2021 season, which is unfortunate because he had a really stout rookie year, was one of the top leading rushers among rookies, especially in the playoffs where he dominated the Seahawks and had a good game against the Packers as well. Um, Of course, Sean McVay talked about replacing Cam Akers, to which he said, we've got some young backs are on our roster that I'm intrigued about seeing how they handle this opportunity. You mentioned Daryl Henderson, who I feel like is one guy you can trust to take over, but these are the rest of the backs on their roster. Xavier Jones, Raymond Calais, Jake Funk, and Otis Anderson. What do those last four cats have in common? None of them have played, none of them have gotten an NFL career rushing attempt. So it's probably pretty clear to say that a move is going to be made to bring in another running back. So, Ethan, in your mind, who do you think would be a good fit to join the Rams' backfield? I don't know how this will work, given the fact that he's a former player in the history. But I wanted to say Todd Gurley because Todd Gurley, he knows the system. He's been a part of that system before. He's a multifaceted back. Like he can catch, he can make plays as a receiver out of the backfield. We we are looking for Todd Gurley to be the bell cow running back anymore. He rushed for like 600 yards last season. I can see him rushing for maybe seven to close to 800 yards with split carries, maybe or around the same average. So I'm gonna say Todd Gurley. Yeah, I'm, I think Todd Gurley would be a very seamless transition. It seems that Eric Dickerson, running back for the Rams, legend, also agrees with you. He thinks it's a no-brainer. And I would probably say the same thing as well. I know that injuries have really hurt Todd Gurley, but, I mean, he still is an effective player. He was effective in his time with Atlanta. Though he lacks the explosiveness that he had in his prime years, I mean, he still is a very solid player. So, for me, it would also be a no-brainer. I would probably go Todd Gurley. Um, Honestly, if Le'Veon Bell could shut up and just do his job, I think Le'Veon Bell would be another really good fit there. But, yeah, I think Todd Gurley would be the easy decision. And then I think Daryl Henderson still will get a lot of opportunities too because I'm excited to see him get more carries because since he's been in the league, he really hasn't gotten that many chances to show that he is the home run hitter that he was at Memphis. And I think that this year is going to be the chance for him to show what he can do. Uh, Speaking of injuries, the Saints announced that uh, wide receiver Michael Thomas is expected to miss the start of the 2021 season after undergoing ankle surgery in June. The reported timetable uh, is four months for the recovery, which would place Thomas to return in October, leaving him a likely candidate to enter the season on the team's pup list, the physically unable to perform list, and missing at least the first six weeks. So this is a pretty stressful situation. 
for the Saints because I think that we can both agree that with Michael Thomas out and then releasing Emmanuel Sanders, their only real offensive weapon is Alvin Kamara. So what do you do if you are New Orleans? some free agents I just pulled some up there's Larry Fitzgerald if he doesn't retire Golden Tate Danny Amendola Dez Bryant if you want to go that route um D.D. Westbrook who is getting workouts with a few teams maybe they could uh swoop in uh yeah I mean among that's really about it in terms of reputable wideouts I mean, yeah, I think that in this situation, you probably do have to call a Golden Tate, maybe try to sweet talk um, D.D. Westbrook to wanting to come. And, hell, I mean, you could have a really good argument for D.D. Westbrook because, I mean, if he comes to the Saints right now, he would instantly be their number one wide receiver because right now I don't think really Traquan Smith has really shown his ability. But I think something that has to be noted is, unlike, you know, Cam Akers on the Rams, the Rams offense otherwise is pretty set. The Saints are essentially in going into the preseason with the quarterback battle. We don't know who their starting quarterback is going to be, and it's clear that no matter what quarterback it is, you want them to have the best option on the field at wideout, and right now they don't have that. So how do you think that it's going to affect the quarterback battle or at least the performance of whoever becomes the starting quarterback? I think it's going to affect it drastically because you don't have the security blanket that is Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas has been a fixture in the Saints offense for, I want to say, at least the past five couple of years. And now you're in a situation where James Winston is a big unknown. Like, he shows flashes last season. And I'm in agreement with you. Like, I'm kind of confident in James this year. But if you don't give him adequate enough um, weapons around him, are you really putting him in the best position to succeed? And we know that you can't you can't prevent injuries. Injuries are going to happen, but you could have potentially. I think they made a bad move by releasing Emmanuel Sanders. At least he's a veteran guy that can produce when he's on the field. Um, but now you're in a situation where you don't have any depth or you don't have any weapons around. And I know take down the element with Taysom Hill is like. You could potentially make one of these gimmick offenses where it's like you run some QB powers and some things of that nature, kind of more like a Colin Kaepernick, Lamar Jackson is offense, and that might be help you out. And it can also lead you a little bit towards Taysom Hill because he's a versatile type of player as far as rushing and passing. 
But you still need capable weapons in that type of offense outside. So I think regardless of who's the starting quarterback, you won't see the best version of him until Michael Thomas gets back on the field. Yeah, I agree. Unless, like you mentioned, they make a blockbuster trade. Because right now, things are not looking easy in New Orleans. Uh, but we kind of talked about last week we did another list of who we ranked who we felt were the top five best offseason addition. I believe that you and I both said number one was Matthew Stafford to the Rams. Well, not everybody thinks so. In fact, starting safety for the 49ers, uh, Jimmy Ward, who has been pretty vocal this offseason, talked about uh, that trade with Scott. Uh, Sports Illustrated and said he's the same quarterback who was on the Detroit Lions and they still didn't go to the playoffs and they had Megatron. What was the problem over there in Detroit? They went and traded Jared Goff who went to the playoffs several times and went to the Super Bowl. Yeah, he lost. He went to the Super Bowl though. I've yet to see that with Matt Stafford. I still believe that he's great. I believe he's a top 10 quarterback, maybe five. I don't know. We'll see. I'm just going off what I see and I see Jared Goff got them boys to the Super Bowl. So, quick correction for Jimmy Ward. They actually did make the playoffs the year after Calvin Johnson left, which is actually pretty wild in itself. But do you think that everybody is overblowing the how much better for the Rams Matthew Stafford will be than Jared Goff was? with you I mean not just complete receiving core but I mean really a complete team like in no time when uh Matthew Stafford was with the Lions did they ever look like a team that was just like this team has potential this team can really scare somebody even with Megatron they just had a hell of a receiver and a quarterback who showed his toughness and like you said got better as his career progressed so I do think that with Jared Goff I think that a lot of his success came from the system Because, I mean, people forget how terrible he was his rookie year and then kind of grew into it as Sean McVay got there. And I just think with the arm talent and the ability that Matthew Stafford has, I think that he can be a perfect piece for this Rams offense. So I don't think we're overhyping it. I think that 
No disrespect to Jerry Goff because he get, did get them to the Super Bowl. He did do that. But the question is, was he the reason they got to the Super Bowl? Was he the reason why they were winning so many games? No. It was really Todd Gurley. And when Todd Gurley wasn't there, it was the defense. So I I think that I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, in the camp of, oh, yeah, the Rams are just going to be in the Super Bowl because of Matthew Stafford. No. But their chances and of not just winning the division but making a good playoff run – I think are significantly higher because of Matthew Stafford. Speaking of things getting significantly higher and significantly better, Monday Night Football inadvertently seems like it has gotten its own competition. Peyton Manning and Eli Manning are set to headline an alternate Monday Night Football telecast. The Mannings will host the telecast on ESPN2 from a remote location for 30 games over the next three years. So... This sounds great and all, but do you think that because Peyton and Eli are going to be doing essentially the same thing that the broadcasters from Monday Night Football are going to be doing, do you think that ESPN kind of played itself because less people are going to watch the main broadcast? Because I think it is. Yeah, I think so too, simply because, like, over the past couple of years, we've seen how former players, especially former quarterbacks, have transitioned into broadcasting. I'm just talking about and like he, in my opinion, I, he's probably the best broadcaster as far as football right now. And you combine that with a guy like Peyton Manning, who has shown flashes of personality and is a likable dude that um can that is very knowledgeable of the game. Like we all know that Peyton Manning is one of the smartest quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. And then you pair that with Eli, his brother, you get that family dynamic. And Eli also has shown personality that people, a lot of people didn't know that he had. So I think that they did play themselves in this situation. Yeah, because I think that one thing about Peyton Manning is he's a very, like, on the football field, he looks like he's all ball. He's completely serious. But then you can see him on commercials, um, like nationwide commercials or, like, Sun- Saturday Night Live, like, being a comedic figure. And plus, because he is so knowledgeable about the game, I mean, people wanted him to do Monday Night Football for years, but he didn't really want the commitment. So I think that him and Eli doing it together will be a pretty fun thing. You get to really hear his take on it. And, I mean, because, honestly, if you ask me, unless, depending on who they get to do a Monday Night game, I'm probably going to be more interested in what Eli and Peyton are talking about. So I think that they did play themselves a bit. I mean, ESPN is still going to get the money from it, but I think that it's going to be a comparison between Peyton and Eli and then whoever the broadcasters are for Monday Night Football, which I think in the long run is going to hurt them. But we shall see. And um, all right, so next moving on, this has been a big topic, but COVID. Now here on the show, we really haven't like you know talked about our thoughts on the vaccine and stuff just because it's your opinion. It's really your choice. But now the NFL has, in many people's opinion, taken away the choice for players. Uh, They announced that any team that experiences a COVID-19 outbreak among unvaccinated players will forfeit the game that week and be credited with a loss if the game can't be rescheduled during the 18-week session. Now, after that was announced, multiple players took to social media, but the biggest impact was from DeAndre Hopkins, who... Uh, because of his choice not to get vaccinated, fell some way about his career. He said, never thought I would say this, but being put in a position to hurt my team because I want to partake in the vet, I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. So 
In your opinion, Ethan, do you think that the NFL is wrong for doing this or do you think it's fair? Because honestly, I don't really see an issue with it. I don't think it's wrong because it's like, hey, if you don't, if it's an outbreak and we can't make up the game, it's a, it's a loss. Yeah. Like, that's, in my opinion, that's a fair, it's, I'm not even going to say penalty because there's nothing wrong. If you have free will to decide if you want to take the vaccine or not. But it's a fair, um, it's a fair situation. Like, hey, if it's an outbreak and we can't reschedule the game, we're going to give you a loss. And, like, as far as the DeAndre Hopkins thing, it's like, I mean, if, if you want to, if you decide to not take the vaccine, then it's perfectly fine. You're, you're a man. You have free will. Nobody's forcing you to do anything. And the reality of it is, it's like, hey, this is the world that we're in. Like, the NFL, I will say, like, overall, a lot of things that they do or they talk about, I'm not in agreement with. But as far as this, it's like, they just want to make sure that they can get keep their players safe. Also, I'm sure a lot of it is, like, they want to have the ability to make as much revenue by having their best players on the field at all times. But it's like, hey, like, if the vaccine is something that can keep the NFL running the field and can keep all these players safe, then they have to do what's best for the league and what's best for their image. But, you know, if you want to if you take a opposition to this, then you have the right to do so as a person. Right. Um, I'm in agreement with you just because it's like, I mean, hell, my team went through it. We had a game postponed from what? It was a Thursday game, I think. Then it got postponed to the Sunday, then to the Monday, then to the Tuesday, and to the Wednesday. And the NFL is not going to keep trying to do that because it's not like the NBA. It's not an 82-game months and months long schedule you have only now 18 weeks to get done what we need to get done and you really can't just stop everything for one team having an outbreak and you do have the choice of taking the vaccine you don't have to if you don't want to but i think that it does kind of beg the question of do you do you want to put your team at risk because if it's only a couple players who aren't vaccinated on a team it's like all right, well, it is what it is. But with regards to players who have, like, I think barely 50%, I know the Cowboys have less than 80. I know the Cardinals are another team that aren't that high with COVID vaccinations. But, like, it really just puts eyes on those teams about, are you sure this is what you want to do? And, I mean, it is free will. Nobody's putting a gun to your head to do it. But I think that this is fair to just say, okay, this is what's going to happen just in case. Because, I mean, hell, just remember how dangerous it was last year having a season. And so I don't think that the NFL wants to go through that again and just the fear, especially because this is supposed to be a season of renewal. Fans are coming back. Players are coming back. We should be getting all the normal NFL fan relations things back. And I just under I totally understand them not wanting to risk that and then not wanting to continue to – put all these people and not just players and coaches, but like stadiums in disarray or fans in disarray because it's really inconveniencing them for month tickets. They spend however much money on just keep getting moved around, moved around, moved around. And I think that this is a fair way to do it. I know that a lot of people have feel a way about it. I know um, Seahawks cornerback DJ Reed called getting the vaccine a competitive advantage, which I totally don't understand how it is one. But 
I get people's strong opinions, but it really just comes down to nobody's forcing you to do it. Just be aware of the consequences. So I don't really think it's that deep. But all right, let's play a game of believable or buffoonery, starting with the Patriots. Now, even though Stefan Gilmore has reportedly um, attended training camp, there are still questions of if he will decide to hold out. We talked about a couple weeks ago this year, he is slated to make $7 million annually, but he does not want to pay play on that contract. However, have no fear, because JC Jackson is here. Uh, he played a lot of cornerback one when Stephon Gilmore was out, and he was one of the league leaders in interceptions after picking off nine passes. So when he asked about his ability to remain the number one corner, he said, of course I am. I would never settle for anything less. I would never say I'm a number two or a number three. I'm a number one. So let's say uh, Stephon Gilmore does decide to opt out of the year or is holding out till he gets a new contract. Should the Patriots be comfortable with J.C. Jackson as their leading corner? I think they should be simply because he's a guy that took on their responsibility, took on their challenge, and I feel like regardless of Yeah, I'm calling believable too. I mean, J.C. Jackson is a very talented player. He just doesn't really get the biggest name recognition, I guess probably because of the people around him. But I think that J.C. Jackson could be fine as the number one corner. I think that they would still have to work on getting more depth after that. But I wouldn't be upset with it. All right, let's talk Philly. Now, after a few months of it seeming like Zach Ertz was going to be on the way out, it seems that plans are changing. Reportedly, there is a great chance Zach Ertz will be on the team. Uh, he will be there at the start of training camp on Tuesday per Howard Eskin. Uh, Zach has been working out in the team facility for close to two weeks with te teammates, and it seems that they have resolved their issues. So, believable or buffoonery, Zach Ertz returning to the Eagles revitalizes and legitimizes their offense. Oh, uh, that's buffoonery because they're going into this with a second-year quarterback that didn't really have any playing time last season. They still don't have any wide receivers to complement everyone else on the offense. Yes, they have a decent running game with Miles Sanders, but we also saw that Miles Sanders isn't the healthiest cat in the NFL, so I don't think adding Zach Ertz, and honestly, Zach Ertz is the guy that stays healthy, so I don't think that this solidifies their offense. Yeah, I'm also calling buffoonery too, because not to mention, I like Zach Ertz, but he did not have a good season last year. Like, even when he did play, it was not the Zach Ertz that we have grown to love and get get to know like as a productive player i mean he got outshone by dallas goddard quite a bit so yeah i'm calling buffoonery on that plus their receiving court needs a lot lot more because you can't just throw the ball up to zach Ertz all the time you got to have somebody else to be able to trust speaking of being able to trust we all know that we can trust russell wilson up in seattle and tyler lockett said that you can trust the wide receiver duo too after um attending uh, good morning football. He called himself and DK Metcalf the best wide receiver duo in the league. Do you think 
that after this season, they will be the best NFL wideout duo. Believable um, or buffoonery? I honestly can see some have some stock in it simply because out of all of these wide receiver duos this in the NFL right now, they just kind of had the most time together. Like Julio and AJ, this would be their first. This would be their first year. I'm trying to think of Chris them. Godwin and Mike Evans have been yeah, together what four years. so unpredictable with regards to receivers because it'll be years where guys who you think are going to excel fall and then there's guys who you never heard of just go off and I think that like you mentioned with Russell Wilson I think that he's really the catalyst of it because of the other receivers that you could possibly put in the top five and I mean receiver duos not just like one wide out case in point like the Chiefs like I'm not counting Tyreek Hill and Miko Hartman because they're not top five but um, I would say that they have the best quarterback. Yes, Tom Brady is great, but, I mean, like you said, uh, Father Tom caught up with him a few times during the season, and I think that as he gets older, those moments are going to happen more and more. So I could see it happening, especially if DK can really help evolve his game because each year he's making more strides. Um, I don't think he's, like, you know, ready to dominate the league instantly, but I think that he's shown that he's getting better and better. So, yeah, I'm with you. I could see some belief to it. All right, so Tom Brady, he's broken so many records, and the next one on the horizon is not necessarily the best one. Right now, he is four sacks behind Brett Favre uh, to be the most sacked quarterback ever with 525 sacks. However, Big Ben is not too much further behind him. He's not five sacks behind Brady. So, believable or buffoonery, Big Ben will break the record for most sack quarterback before Tom Brady. I'm calling believable. I'm calling believable simply because I I trust the Buccaneers O-line more than I trust the Steelers. Yeah. Yes, I know, like, yes, I know Tom Brady. He's probably the least mobile quarterback in the NFL at this moment. And Big Ben, he has a slight bit of mobility left, but it's not that much. But I trust the Buccaneers front set, front four, front line, I'm sorry, to protect them more than I do the Steelers. Yeah, especially with all the losses that the Steelers just undergone. Not to mention, Tom Brady don't like getting hit. So anytime, even if it's not a sack, he get touched. The O-line hears about it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going Big Ben. 
All right, big money moves are taking place in the NFC West. Um, the 49ers made star inside linebacker Fred Warner, the highest paid inside linebacker in the league after signing him to a five-year, $95 million contract with $45 million guaranteed. And also, it seems like the Seahawks are ramping up their contract talks with safety Jamal Adams, which would apparently make him the highest paid safety in the NFL per Mike Garofolo. So this isn't a believable or buffoonery, but which statement do you agree with more? Fred Warner deserves to be the league's highest paid linebacker or Jamal Adams should be the league's highest paid safety? Um, I'm actually going to go against the grain and say Fred Warner deserves to be the highest paid linebacker because in my opinion, he's the best coverage linebacker or one of the best, like, top two best coverage linebackers currently in the NFL. And given the way that the NFL is more spread out and pass happy, I would put more stock into a linebacker that can cover and play the runner. Like, I know Jamal Adams can do both, but it's hard to find linebackers that are the in coverage and stopping the runner. Fair. I'm going to go the case of Jamal Adams. I think that I think that people are putting way too much stock in the fact that he didn't have a pick just because he literally played every position on defense. He played safety. He played linebacker. He played DN. He played some corner as well. And I think that just his versatility and his toughness and honestly just the aggression that his presence alone brought to the Seahawks defense, I don't think that can really be understated. And while Fred Warner, if you ask me, is the best player on the 49ers defense, I think that Jamal Adams is really a transcendent player who I think, like I said, the lack of interceptions is the only thing that really holds him back because he is such a versatile player. So I will go the case of uh, Jamal Adams in that argument. But all right, before we close out, we got to talk about the Packers because Lord only knows what is going on with that front office. It started earlier in the week when Adam Schefter um, reported that the Packers offered Aaron Rodgers a two-year contract extension that would have tied him to Green Bay for five more years and made him the highest-paid quarterback in football. As we all now know, Aaron Rodgers said, no thanks, proving that it's not just about the money. Then shortly thereafter, it seemed that the Packers front office also disagreed with Devontae Adams, and they have since broken off long-term contract extension talks. There are no current plans to resume them. The two sides have been negotiating for months, but they are now in a bad place. Then, this was just yesterday, Reports came out that uh, multiple sportbooks and bettors in Vegas are expecting Aaron Rodgers to announce his retirement next week. Needless to say, it's been a lot going on. And then last night, both Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams both shared the same picture on their Instagram stories of Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. So, believable or buffoonery, 2021 was the last dance for Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers, and neither of them will be on the team next year. Probably everything you said, I think, because it's this situation where Aaron Rodgers isn't going to be on the team. Because Aaron Rodgers, he just proved, like, he's the type of guy where he can do, he can retire, sit out the year, and leave 
after a certain amount of time, the team that you play for doesn't have the rights to you anymore. So I can legit see him sitting out a year, just remaining here with standing football shape, and then coming back and just going to whatever team he chose. Because I remember, you know, when Marshawn, he retired. He only retired for a year. He came back to – he went to Oakland. But they had to – excuse me, Seattle had to trade him. Oh, that's right. Okay. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, just being like, yeah, I'm gone. I'm going to sit out. And then Devontae Adams, he's the type of guy where it's like, I'm not going to play with y'all. I don't have my quarterback anymore. And they've been rubbing him the wrong way. So, I definitely think this is the last edge. Yeah, I think that it's just – too much going on right now for there to be really any hope in Green Bay. Like, I think that the hope for um, Aaron Rodgers is about out the window. And then reports were saying that the Packers didn't want to make Devontae Adams the highest paid wideout, which honestly I think will really be the only way for him to want to stay in Green Bay, Green Bay without Aaron Rodgers. So it just seems like the Packers are due to, like, blow – up. Like, I just think they are going to be in rebuild mode pretty soon. And it's it's wild to watch. I don't I don't know 100% if I think Aaron is going to retire, but I don't I don't see him suiting up for the Packers. I think that Devontae Adams, I mean, honestly, Devontae Adams already knows he's going to have the pick of just about any team in the league. If he leaves in free agency, of course, what um, the Packers could do, could do is do the franchise tag and all that. But, I mean, if he does leave, he can go just about anywhere. And so, yeah, I think it's believable. I think it's a wrap in Green Bay, which kind of sucks because I, I like the Packers a little bit. But I just, yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's over. The era of Aaron, it's over. Now I think it's really Jordan Love's time. And good luck to him because I've seen that receiving core in action. If for some reason, Devontae Adams doesn't play, good luck. But right, let's talk the NBA. And before we do anything, we have to congratulate our new NBA champions, the Milwaukee Bucks, who defeated the Phoenix Suns in six games. Shout out to the Bucks because I picked them and I was worried. I was like, this may show that I might not know a thing about basketball, but then they proved me right. So shout out to the Bucks. Y'all are clutch. But let's talk about the Suns. Starting off, what went wrong in your opinion, Ethan? Um, what went wrong? Honestly, a big thing that went wrong for them is they only had one true big man in DeAndre Aiden. When DeAndre Aiden got in foul trouble, they brought in, because of Dario Sarge's injury, and Dario Sarge isn't, wasn't a true big himself, but they brought in Frank Kaminsky. And Frank Kaminsky was a guy that, he's not a true big. He's more of a, he's more of a stretch four, but he plays center in today's NBA. Um, So, that, in my opinion, was the big a big issue. I also think that they had poor late game execution. Like it was very uncharacteristic of the way that Chris Paul turned the ball over in late crunch crunch time moments, and I think that that cost them. And honestly, the biggest thing is they really and truly had nowhere to stop Giannis. Giannis was playing like a man possessed. He was a man on a mission to win this finals 
after Chris Paul made they come in about Giannis and his free throws, it's like Giannis said, like, ah, oh, you think that's what you think? Okay, bet, I'm going to show you. And he proceeded to play dominant as far as being a presence in the paint. And then when he did get fouled, he basically made his, he made his free throws and he made them pay. So that's what I think went wrong. Yeah, I'm in total agreement with you. I mean, honestly, it's really not much more to add. I just think that Giannis out, outmatched them. I think that what happened with DeAndre Aiden, unfortunately, is Giannis is a man amongst boys a lot of the time. And DeAndre Aiden showed some nice flashes this playoffs. But, I mean, in terms of overall development and comparing him to some of the other big men that he faced this year, this playoff series, he's a boy compared to Giannis. Then that's being generous because he's the best big man on the sun. So going up against Giannis, I mean, that's a tough break for anybody. But well, no player probably caught more hell for the Suns loss than Chris Paul, who made a bad mark in NBA history for being the only player to blow four two and oh series leads so how much blame in your opinion do you feel is justly on cp3 uh i would i think he had some blame in it simply because it was moments like i said in the first time where he where he had costly turnovers and it was also just moments where he didn't he didn't look like himself where he didn't take advantage of certain matchups he would have situations where he would have Giannis or another big switched on him. And normally, a situation where you would see him hit that mid-range, um, fade away, or get to the paint and hit that floater, he just wasn't making those shots. And I don't know the cause. It's been report, It's been rumored that they think he might have had an injury, but we don't know. But I think that that's because of that, that's a big reason. Like, he wasn't the type of Chris. He wasn't the Chris Father. He used to manage the game and the parts and get, make the plays to win in close games. Yeah, I think that – don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say that I think that CP3 is, like, not to blame at all because, I mean, this was the worst that his ball handling and ball security has looked in a while. And, unfortunately, this is the absolute worst time to not be able to hold on to the ball. So, I think that that really crushed a lot of the momentum. Not, It's already hard enough trying to beat a team like the Bucks that has a superstar in Giannis, but it's even harder when you're giving them more opportunities. So, I think that – CP3 deserves some of the blame. I think that what why I kind of feel for him is because he's one of the best point guards to play the game. At the very least, top 15. I still consider him top 10. But I think that with this finals loss, I think that it's going to be a huge blow to his legacy that I think that really only one winning a championship is going to fill. But unfortunately, I don't know if that's going to happen for him, especially considering being, what, 36 now, only have a set amount of time to really play and still be effective. So it, it, we'll see how that goes. But all right, let's talk about, on the positive side, what, in your opinion, went right for the Bucks? Um, Number one, I think when they made the switch to put Drew Holiday on Chris Paul, that greatly changed the dynamic because in games one and two, the games that the Suns won, they were letting, they were just conceding the switch. They were letting the big switch on the Chris Paul and Devin Booker the whole game, and Devin 
that Chris Paul took advantage of those matchups. Drew Holiday, insert Drew Holiday, they put him on Chris Paul. He was fighting through screens. He was busting through screens. He was also picking Chris Paul up full court. And that's something like that you might not make, you might not think of it as being like a drastic thing, but that's the type of thing that you kind of drain your drain the energy of the opposing player because they're not used to Everybody's not used to being picked up full court. I'm sure Chris Paul is, but still, when you're being picked up full court by a physical defender like Drew Holiday, it is taxing. Yeah. I think the second thing that they did is they they didn't necessarily look for Giannis in the traditional way that they used to look for Giannis. And what I mean by that is in the in their previous years. They were only they would have Giannis up top and have everybody spread around. This version in the playoffs, they put Giannis at center, which also kind of helped with some of the switching that they had been lacking, that they had been um, conceding to in the first two games. But they put Giannis at center. He was a better defensive matchup at center, and they put him in pick and rolls. They didn't always have the ball in his hands. They had pick and rolls and him and Chris Middleton. They had some with him and Drew Holiday in that way. The teams weren't able to load up and build a wall up against Giannis because he was a guy that was receiving the ball already on the move after setting the pick. And honestly, I think that they just had some timely performances from some timely guys. Like they had some timely games with Chris Middleton took charge. They had some with Drew Holiday took charge. Bobby um, Portis played well as well. Yeah, um, another thing, like I said, you pretty much hit it on the head, but I think something else that really is worth knowing is Giannis really took more so charge of usually we kind of talk about the defensive adjustments of the Bucks and those switches because the Suns have two great mid-range shooters in CP3 and D-Book. Well, um, especially in game six, you could tell it was apparent that Giannis was really in control of that opportunity. When they came in that space, they had to go up against him, which is why he was getting so many blocks because he had used his size mismatch and the length to really affect those shots. Sure, they still got their shots off, but it was very different from getting those clean mid-range looks over at Drew Holiday or maybe Chris Middleton oh, than a Giannis where he really showed his ability as a defensive player. But a lot of praise has been thrown Giannis's way. But I know this one, considering who said it, you probably feel the way the most about. And it came from Shaq following Giannis's 50-point uh, game six performance, which I didn't, we didn't say it, but I'm willing to bet we both have Giannis as the the Mamba MVP. I don't think there's any other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. yeah, okay, cool. But, yeah, following his performance, uh, Shaq said this about him. He said, thanks for bringing back old school bully ball. Thank you for bringing back old school bully ball back. Only one Superman now, and that's you. You was dominating. So, is Giannis the new Superman? He's 
he's the, he has his giant, gigantic stature. Like Giannis is a freaking nature in his own right, but Joel Embiid is like an imposing figure. So I would say, for the time being, yes, it's Giannis. But if you were to say, like, we get the Joel Embiid that we had before he got injured, I would say it would be Joel Embiid. I think that's fair. I think a big reason why Giannis got this is because when he performed like this, when he played that bully ball, I think that that's also what gave him more eyes on it. But I will, I think that, once again, I think we can both agree that of the other basketball players who have proclaimed themselves as Superman, Giannis is the real Superman. Because there's a, there's a saying that when you're good, you tell everybody you're good. But when you're great, everybody else is saying that you're great. So, Dwight Howard, look at yourself in the mirror. Hate Dwight Howard. But yeah, congratulations to Giannis. Very happy for the Bucks. And I'm also happy for the next generation of NBA hoopers who will be coming into the league next, what day is that? Next, what's the fifth? 29th. Next Thursday? Cool. Next Thursday, the first round of the NBA draft takes place. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to do a mock of the top 15 NBA draft picks. It's not going to be like a normal NFL mock draft just because, honestly, the, the weird thing about basketball is after you hit past the lottery, it's kind of, yeah, yeah, right. So, we're going to do the top 15 picks. Ethan, do you want to go back and forth with the picks? How do you want to do it? Yeah, we can go back and forth. All right, you can start us off. Number one. Number one, I have Kay Cunningham going to the Detroit Pistons. Yeah. Me too. Not really much more needs to be said on that. All right. Number two, the Houston Rockets. I could have went a guard here, but I'm going to have them go after center Evan Mobley out of USC. I think that he would be – he's a very talented force on the offense and defensive side of the ball. I think that they recognize that the days of small ball are over, and I think that him and Christian Wood would be a very formidable front court uh, for them to really boast, especially as they grow the rest of their team. on that. All right, third overall pick. What you got? I have, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Toronto Raptors. No, it's not the, the Raptors. Cavs. The Cavs. I have them taking it. I have them taking every Mobley simply because they they have guards already and there is guard in college 16. Yes, um, Jared Allen is a good piece, but he could be a rotational piece. He also could be somebody that you trade or send in a package to receive a veteran that can help your team. So I have them taking every moment. Um, I have this is where I see Jalen Green going. Um, I think it's pretty much an inevitability right now that uh, Colin Sexton is going to end up being traded, and so because of that, I think that you have to prepare for that. And I think that Jalen Green can be a better team player while still providing that offensive boost for them. So yeah, I got um, 
That's where I see Jalen Green going. All right, next up, the Toronto Raptors at four. This is where I see Jalen Suggs going. Kind of another situation of they're going to have a guard on the move. I think that this is a nice way to replace uh, Kyle Lowry. He has a lot of upside. He has potential to really be one of the most formidable scorers in the league. And I think that the Raptors right now, they're trying to turn the tide and become a much younger and fast-paced team. And in doing that, I think that Jalen Suggs would be a nice way to get that ball rolling. Yeah, I also have Jalen Suggs going to the Raptors for everything that you just said. All right, Orlando Magic. The Orlando Magic, I have them taking a a surprising pick. I have them taking Moses Moody out of Arkansas. Mm. He's a he's a six seven guard. I know that they have um, R.J. Hampton and Cole Anthony, but he's the type of guy that you can put at the small forward spot. He can handle the rock. He can shoot a tad bit, but he's a guy that can get to the rim. He can make plays. And I think that given the fact they already have two dynamic guards, they have an up-and-coming big in Wendell Carter that when he's healthy, he can be a very productive piece. Why not fortify your front your front court by drafting the, feature, the small forward of the future? I'm going with the forward, but instead I'm going uh, Jonathan Kaminga out of the Congo. I think that the days for uh, Jonathan Isaac are pretty numbered. I could see him leaving this post upcoming um, season. I mean, uh, free agency period. And so because of that, I do think that they want to keep building around their team and continue getting big youth. Uh, Wendell Carter, like you mentioned, he can show he's shown that he can be a very productive piece. And I think that with them having another pick coming up, that they'll hit the guard position there. But I think that the upside and the ceiling for Jonathan Kaminga is pretty high, and I don't think that they really want to pass on that, especially if they do make the moves that I mentioned um, with their current roster. All right, next up, number six, the Oklahoma City Thunder, who have a billion and one picks over the next few years. This is where I see uh, forward Scotty Barnes going out of Florida State. I think the his ability to spread the floor is going to be a big need. While I think point guard would help out, especially if Kimball Walker does end up being on the move, I think that they could really use a solid three, especially to pair with Shy. Um, he does have area for growth, but I think because the Thunder have so many picks coming up, they can kind of bank on his potential. And his ability, like I said, to spread the floor. So, yeah, that's why. Yeah, yeah, for me, at number six, I have, this is where I have Jonathan Kaminga going, simply because, like you said, they do need a three. And Kaminga, he's a guy that, in my opinion, he's the most intriguing prospect, probably in this top 15 range, simply because, like, he's, he's not a, he's, he's kind of raw as far as a prospect goes. But he has a tremendous upside, and I think that with the way that the Oklahoma City Thunder are going, like he could be a guy that can even he could be he could become a superstar talent. And they already have some pretty solid pieces in place, like you said with Shy. Like he doesn't have to come in and take over as the focal point of that franchise. They already have their focal point, but he could be a guy that can you know utilize his raw tools and make plays and grow to becoming a top player in the organization. All right, next up, the Warriors. I have the Warriors taking uh, James Booth Knight from Gonzaga. I know that he's a guard. I know that oh, he's at UConn. UConn. That's a – what's his name? Corey Lispitt is Gonzaga. Yeah, he's right, he's right, he's right. You, wait, you sure? Mm-hmm. Booth Knight, that's the – UConn. Okay, I might be wrong. 
I'm gonna double check. I'm pretty sure he's a uh, what's it called? Yukon. Yeah, he's Yukon. Now, this is my first trade. Um, I don't think the Warriors hold on to this pick. Um, I, I'm kind of buying, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid as far as them trading it to the Pacers um, so they can get Miles Turner, so they can get a big who I feel like really can help out on the defensive end, trade James Wiseman and that uh, seventh overall pick. And so with the Pacers taking over this pick, this is where I see point guard Damian uh, Mitchell going out of Baylor. Reason being, he's one of the older players in the draft, which is wild because I think he's like 21 or 22. But he has a very veteran approach to the game, which is what – the Indiana Pacers are pretty much known for it. He comes in, he does his job. He may not be the flashiest guy on the court, but he gets everything done. Um, not to mention, he really has, um, he has a really nice scoring approach to the game. Um, and also, he provides nice depth. Worst comes to worst. I mean, the Pacers have shown that they're a solid team, but injuries have hurt them quite a bit. So at the very least, he can be a very nice depth piece. All right, eighth. Um, with the Magic. Now, this is where I see uh, guard James Bonite coming off the board. I think that it provides a lot of depth for um, their guard position. I mean, right now, we see we saw some nice things with Cole Anthony and Mark, but Markel Fultz. We really don't know what Markel Fultz can be. And like you mentioned of him potentially being like a Lou Will type of player, I feel like he could at worst be that with Orlando or maybe even take over a starting role. Either way, I think that he has potential to do some nice things in Orlando. Um, with the eighth pick, I see the Magic taking Kai Jones. He's a the forward from Texas, he's a guy that he's raw and he's not a product, but he's a great athlete. He's a guy that can make impact plays on the defensive end. He's a guy that his greatest asset is running the floor. And he's young with these dynamic guards. You can essentially put him in the role of a um, what's his name? Like a Clint Capella. Mm-hmm. But he Next up, Sacramento Kings at nine.
fast break. He's a he's a decent shooter. He also can handle the rock a bit. So that's where I see him going. Uh, this is where I see Franz with Wagner out of Michigan going. I think that what the Kings will really appreciate by him appreciate about him is he's a very good defensive player and he's also a really good distributor. Whereas with the Aaron Fox, if he does stay, I mean he's more so of a slasher. He can distribute the ball, but it's not his call to fame. And I think that with other players who can shoot like a Tyrese Halliburton or a Buddy Heald, if he also stays, I think that having somebody like Franz who can step up on the defensive end as well as help get those cats the ball is going to be something that in the long run can really help them out, especially as the season wears on. All right, number 10, the New Orleans Pelicans. This is where I see guard Keon Johnson ending up. I think that Lonzo ends up leaving, and so I think that they look to find a player who kind of has a similar skill set. Johnson is very versatile with regards to his ability to shoot, to play defense, to be a playmaker, and I think that he comes at a much lower cost, which is something else that the Pelicans will appreciate. So I think that it will be a nice replacement for Lonzo. I'm actually in agreement with you there. I think basically everything that you said. And he also can be a guy that can make flash impact plays. He's one of the more athletic players in this draft. And as you saw in Tennessee, he's a guy that can jump out the gym. So why not add a young, dynamic guard to pair with Zion? Exactly. All right, so the 11th overall pick, the Charlotte Hornets. Gonzaga. Yeah, and I think that we all know. The only reason I'm saying this is we all know that Gonzaga, they have smart, high IQ players. And I think that that's something that you can add to any organization. But I think that Charlotte, they're just looking for good comedy pieces to pair around a metal and scary Terry. Yeah, I'm also in agreement with you with Lisbeth. And just something else is, of the draft, he's the best three-point shooter. I want to say he shot close to 50% from the arc. And I think that because the Hornets already have some exciting pieces in tow with Lonzo and Scary Terry, and we've seen it with um, Graham, Devontae Graham, I think that this is another piece that could really help this team out, especially as they kind of get better and prepare to have try to have some success in the future. So, yeah, we're in agreement there. All right, 12th pick um, with the Spurs. This is where I see guard Moses Moody going out of Arkansas. I think that Pop will really appreciate his overall efficiency. He's a solid defensive player. While he does still need some um, improvement, he's still, I think that in that system, you're going to learn how to be a team player and you're going to learn how to really pick up defensive assignments. Not to mention, I think that they're going to lose quite a bit of offense with DeMar DeRozan. I think that this could be a nice step to start replacing that. Um, this is where I have Franz Wagner going, simply because he, he's another one of those kind of high IQ guys. Like he's not going to make a he's not going to make a bad play, but he's also not going to make like a super outstanding play play on the court. And I think that that's what Pop has always looked for. He's looking for those guys that aren't necessarily the flashiest of players, but the guys that make solid plays. And I can see. Going to the Spurs. All right, so Indiana Pacers are on the clock with the 13th overall pick. This is where I see Damian Mitchell going, kind of similar to what you said. He's a guy, he's a defensive base point guard. He can knock down the trade. He also has some offensive capabilities as far as scoring. 
to have their guards situated, their starting guards situated with um, Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert. I think that you can insert him kind of in another role of like being on the bench. And he could be a guy that can run that second unit. And he could also be a hound defensively. Because we all know that in the NBA, it's a lot of great offensive guards. So if you want to insert a tough matchup situation, like why not throw him on a Steph Curry or, you know, a Tyree and he could harass them defensively and let the other um, guards take a break on the defensive side of the ball. Fair enough. Uh, so this is where I see power forward Isaiah Jackson out of Kentucky going. Um, like I said earlier, I think that they trade Miles Turner to the Warriors for that seventh overall pick in James Wise. And I think that having a player like Jackson, I mean, while offensively he doesn't have numbers that blow you away, he's a great shot blocker. And in losing a player like Miles Turner, you want to make that back up because you could argue he was their best defensive player. And so I, with that being said, I think that Isaiah Jackson could come in and kind of take over that role that Turner left over and really just provide more help to their defense, particularly in the post. All right, next up, the Warriors with the 14th overall pick. This is where I see uh, guard Trey Murphy going out of Virginia. He's a 3 and D player, and I mean, what team in the league appreciates three-pointers more than the Warriors? He also provides really good depth. Um, onto that line because I mean let's be honest at guard they are perfectly fine but I mean you never know life happens so like I said really gives good depth kind of for the same things you mentioned about uh, James Bonite I can see uh, Trey Murphy doing that as well Jalen Johnson went to Duke. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're, I keep getting my things wrong. You're good. Yeah. He went to Duke. He's a, but he's an athletic wing who can make plays off the balance. He isn't that great of a shooter, but he's a tremendous athlete, and he can also make plays off the balance for other players. And I think that he could be a guy that you can insert in, and he could be a good piece off the bench as far as, like, you know, setting up the offense and being probably their, one of their main productive players off the bench. All right, last pick, the Washington Wizards at 15. The Washington Wizards, I have them, this is where I have them taking Trey Murphy because everything, like you said, he's a 3 and D player and this is with the, the caveat of the belief of Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal still in tow. They could potentially have a guy that, when needed, you can put him in a three-guard lineup, and he can probably hold his own defensively. And he's a capable shooter. And that provides space for Russell to attack and for Bradley to attack as well. Now, this is where I see Jalen Johnson going. Like you mentioned, he's not necessarily the best shooter, but, I mean, he is a great overall athlete. And I think that for the Wizards – whether or not Russ and Beal do leave, I do think that you have to have more athleticism and another reason for excitement on that roster. And I think that Jalen Johnson, I mean, he started off his career at Duke with so many expectations, kind of fell through as the season went on. But I still think that 
he he does so many things that a team is going to buy into that and hope that he can go and produce that on the pro level. And I think that with the Wizards, they'll be one of those teams to take a chance on it just in case they do end up trading some of their guys. So I could see that being the move in Washington. But all right, that was our top 15 uh, mock draft. Of course, the real draft is going to be taking place next Thursday. So we'll see which ones we got right and which ones we got wrong. Um, Now, in mentioning some point guards like a Russell Westbrook and CP3 earlier, there's a team, playoff team called the Los Angeles Lakers who are desperate to get point guards and seemingly have had their name attached to just about every point guard out there. And so for this last thing before we play a game of believable or buffoonery, what we're going to do is rank the fits of these four point guards, Russell Westbrook, Kyle Lowry, Damian Lillard, and CP3. So, Ethan, do you want to go first or do you want me to go? I'll go first. All right. Yeah. As far as best fit, I am going to say Damian Lillard. He's a guy that's still fairly young. He's still a top player in his league. And with LeBron, father time catching up to LeBron a tad bit, and him not being nearly as dominant as he was in previous years, you can insert Dane. He can take he can take on a bigger load, so LeBron doesn't get worn out by the time the playoffs hit. But he also won't be asked to be the main guy because you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Number two, I would say Chris Paul, simply because he's a guy that he, for one, he's tremendous friends with LeBron James, but he's a guy that you won't have to act too much of. He can manage the game well. He's also somebody that I think he's not as good a shooter as Dane, but he's a capable enough three-point shooter to where he can play off the ball with LeBron. He also is a guy that you can run the pick and roll with Anthony Davis, and it'll be very successful. Um, number three, I would say Kyle Lowry, simply because he's a great scorer and he can shoot. He can space the floor out, and he has a bulldog mentality. And number four, I hate to be a guy like this, but I got to go rush. And the reason I have Russ at four is because he he doesn't, his shooting his inefficiencies, I think, won't serve the Lakers well. Like, you have, you will have a lineup with LeBron, who isn't that great of a shooter, Anthony Davis, who isn't that great of a shooter, and who really doesn't want to shoot whatever big you are having. So, and Russell Westbrook, where would you really necessarily get spacing from? So I don't have Russ last. I think that he could feasibly in some ways make it work just because he's a high motor player and he plays so hard. But as far as like a on-the-court dynamic, given the fact that he's not a shooter, I think that it would uh, it would create some issues as far as spacing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are in total agreement. I have it, Dame, CP3, Lowry, and Russ, too. So, yeah, I don't think, while I would love my favorite player to play for my favorite team, I don't really think that it would be the best fit. Um, Just one thing I wanna, wanted to add was, I think in terms of, in terms of what the Lakers need right now, I do feel like CP3 is the better overall fit. But the reason why I went Dame 1 is because CB3 is up there in age too. 
him and LeBron are very close to the same age. And so if they were both to retire, let's say the same year, then they would just be finding themselves in the same issue that they had had for the past few years. Whereas with Dane, like you said, with him being younger, they get a bit more flexibility and they're able to go from there and as opposed to just being completely stuck again. So, yeah, we're in agreement as far as the top four fits. And it's also crazy because, like, most of the uh, point guards who they're linked to are, like, all 30 and up. Dame is – I think Dame is 30 or just about to turn 30. So, yeah, it's, it's about to be real old in L.A. right now. But, all right, let's play a game of believable or buffoonery NBA edition, starting with Kevin Durant. So – Fans were very excited with this Bucks and Suns matchup uh, because they felt like it was one of the most evenly matched matchups in the past few years. One fan even said, Bucks and Suns are giving us the best NBA finals we've seen since 2016. I just hope we get a second game seven. Uh, KD commented, Warriors and Cavs 2017 was better. And in his response, he said, perfectly even matchup fam, top to bottom. <laughs> this is definitely buffoonery, but I, I want to hear. What do you think? Were the tw- was the 2017 finals between the Warriors and Cavs the best finals of the last five years? No, the best finals of the last five years. I'd probably say Raptors and Warriors. No, no, it's, no. That was it. Wasn't, and the reason I say no to that is simply because it's like. You lost Clay, you lost KD. It was just still versus the rest. It was just still versus the Raptors, and you didn't have star power. And honestly, it wasn't. If everyone was healthy, that series wouldn't have been competitive. Yeah, I don't think it would have been competitive. The reason why I'm saying I think it, I would go with that one, just because I think that it also really helps solidify Kawhi as that dude. Because, yeah, even though people were hurt, I mean, you still can't take away what Kawhi did with the team that nobody had that high expectations for. And I think throughout that series, I think it just was a culmination for Kawhi. Do I think it was, like, one of the best ones ever? No. But, I mean, most of the last finals winners were – and, hell, I'm even picking out over the Lakers last year or the Warriors. It's like it was all with the same team, so the Raptors gave a bit distance. But um, – I think – like, I agree with you as far as the Kawhi thing. I also think, but I think as far as the best one, um, it's the three, three one comeback within the last five years. Mm-mm. That was, like, since that one. So. Okay. I would, so, if I'm going last five years, I honestly have to go with the finals. Yeah. I would take that too. over the Toronto Golden State one. Which is fair. I ain't even mad at that. Um, In terms of, like, I think I would say it's definitely the most evenly matched one of the last few years. But here's why I'm definitely disagreeing with KD. Also, one, I think he's biased because that was his first championship. Two, he won finals MVP. Three, the Warriors won that freaking series in five games. And four, there were only two games that ended with a score within single digits. There is no way. I'm counting that the best anything. That series was not good because everybody knew the Warriors was going to win. So, KD was just biased. Definitely calling buffoonery on that. 
Speaking of something else that I consider to be buffoonery, in the post-game press conference after game six, of course, everybody was flooding Giannis with questions, including um, about his choice to stay with Milwaukee. To which he said, I could go to a super team and just do my part and win a championship. But this is the hard way to do it, and we did it. While most people were celebrating him for not going the super team route, Steven Jackson, who normally I agree with on many things, co-host of uh, the All The Smoke podcast with Matt Barnes, felt some type of way about his comments. And he said, Giannis is on a super team. The Bucks have Drew Holiday and a closer and Chris Middleton. You have a super team. You may not have super names, but don't diminish your teammates. Believable or buffoonery? The Bucks are a super team. Um, nah. I wouldn't say they're a super team because what makes super teams, super teams are the name that's associated with the teams. Like, Giannis is only a team. Giannis is the only real superstar. Like, with going, with all these teams in the past that have been considered super teams, you had the Celtics. They had a big three of KG, um, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce. Those are three Hall of Famers. You had the Miami Heat big three with Chris Bosh, LeBron James, and Dwayne Wade. Those are three Hall of Famers. You had the original Golden State big three. And I don't even consider that a super team because all, every player on that homegrown was drafted and homegrown. I mean, hell, uh, in the same year, you got KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. Yeah, like that is a super team, so I definitely think that's buffoonery. Yeah, it's buffoonery because, I mean, it's not like he said he went to the worst team in the league and won a championship, but he didn't have a super team. He was the only superstar. Chris Middleton, while he has great games – he also has games where he just does virtually nothing. And Drew Holiday offensively had a tough series too. So it's not like it was just equally paced. Everybody was getting like 20, 30 points. Giannis did a bulk of the work. So I'm calling buffoonery on that. They are a very good team, but a super team, absolutely not. All right, so continuing the Giannis talk, Kendrick Perkins had things to say about Giannis too. A.K.A. he was the main person calling Giannis Robin, but that's neither here nor there. He said, at the rate that Giannis is going, he's going to finish number two power forward of all time behind Tim Duncan, in my opinion. Believable or buffoonery, Giannis is going to end his career as the second best power forward of all time. This is buffoonery. And I, I love Giannis, but I think people, when it comes down to power forward, it's one of the more slept on and missed, like, hard, not even hard to judge, but misjudged positions. Yet, Tim Duncan is the greatest power forward of all time. Then you have Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett, because of the circumstances of what team he played for, he didn't win nearly as many championships as a Tim Duncan. But KG, for a long stretch of his time, he was one of the he was one of the best players in the NBA. And like yes, Giannis has been amazing. And honestly, he has his two MVPs, but it's always still been questions of is Giannis the best player? Like it was a lot of moments where it was no question KG was the best player. So I still think it's KG. I think Giannis would definitely be top five 
see some belief to it I mean especially if he's able if he wins another championship I'm I, we can't tell the future so I don't know if it's going to happen or not but I think that will also help strengthen his argument and I think that like you mentioned KG it was like no doubt he was the best player on his team well for a lot of the time he's playing on the Timberwolves so it's like it, who else is going to really be better I mean through, I'm not saying best player on the team I'm saying best player in the NBA how Yeah, okay, and then in that case, yeah. But I mean it, it's it's weird about it's weird with Giannis because I feel like there are times when I think that what harps what people mainly harp on him is he does have a limited skill set. But the things that he does, he's great at. And so I think that that would be the biggest question. But I do think that, like I said, with this rate that Giannis is going, I think that the championship really helps. I could see it. I think that Kevin Garnett, even though he was one of the most aggravating players for players to play against, as they would say, I mean, he was a tremendous talent. And then there's other cats like Dirk Nowitzki who were also tremendous, the Carl Malones, the Moses Malones, cats like that. So it's a lot of really good point guard, great, I mean, power forwards in this league. But I think that if Giannis can continue to play at a dominant level and can continue to boost his resume, especially considering, like, and, you know, NBA fans and the media, they love a good story. And Giannis is a great story about, you know, growing up poor in Greece and coming here, blah, blah, blah. I think that that could also boost him up higher than maybe a Kevin Garnett in the future. So I could I, I could see it happening. I don't know, but, like, I, I find there's some belief to that. All right, let's talk Kyle Kuzma, another power forward. But he thinks, you know, maybe he could be better than he should be. Uh, as of right now, it's reported that Kyle Kuzma is ready to move on from the Lakers and says that he is on the same level as Jason Tatum. So, believable or buffoonery, Kyle Kuzma can be the face of an NBA team. Don't, yeah. And I like Kyle Kuzma, but no. No. All right, last piece of business. Mr. Bradley Beal. I know a lot of talk has been going on about Damian Lillard recently, about will he or won't he be traded. Well, we have been playing the will he, won't be, he be traded game of Bradley Beal for at least the last year. And the latest reports are coming out um, that Bradley Beal is considering requesting a trade before the NBA draft next week. So, believable or buffoonery, Bradley Beal will be traded from the Wizards before the NBA draft. Buffoonery, simply because the draft is this Thursday. Yeah. I call buffoonery too. But all right, let's broaden the scope of it. Will this be the offseason that Bradley Beal is finally traded? I can see some belief in it just because he's been loyal to their franchise and I think he's finally reached the point of being fed up. So I can see him being traded. Yeah. If he really demands their trade. Yeah, because I think that if Russ leaves, he's definitely gone. Like, I feel like if Russ. If they keep Russell Westbrook, I think that that would be more of a reason to stay, especially if they're able to have a good draft and maybe bring in a solid free agent or two. But if Russ is gone, I think that it is pretty much a nail in the coffin. 
But, oh, yeah, before we close out this uh, NBA part, be on the lookout because next week we are going to be doing our NBA free agency predictions because free agency starts August 2nd. One thing I say about the NBA is everything is very fast. Like, as soon as the season is over, there's the draft, there's free agency. So be on the lookout for that. Like I said, that is coming next week. But, all right, let's go ahead and talk some WWE. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk some Money in the Bank 2021. And before I get started, I just want to say that I'm recording this as soon as Money in the Bank ended. And for 99% of the show, I had nothing but mostly positive things to say. I was really proud of how they put on the show. It was great first pay-per-view back in front of fans. Everyone was excited. It was a great card. And then the ending. But... I'll get to that momentarily. Let's start off with a recap. Start with the kickoff show. The Uso Penitentiary has reopened its doors after the Usos regained the SmackDown tag titles. Uh, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Nikki Ash as the new Miss Money in the Bank. Almost shows that everything really is bigger in Texas as he and AJ Styles retain. Bobby Lashley shows why he is the almighty and obliterates Kofi Kingston like he should. And an instant classic Charlotte Flair and Rhea Ripley put on a show, but it's the queen who is back on her throne. Uh, while I never knew I needed to see the Drip Brothers together, it was Biggie who gets the win. And finally, Roman Reigns keeps his grasp firm on the WWE, but the old head of the table just can't seem to stay home. Overall, I went four and three. My favorite match. Don't get me wrong, uh, the men's Money in the Bank match, you know, before it was, well, after the issue with Peacock subsided, which I'll get to later. Um, it looked like it was a really fun match, a nicely paced match, not one that, you know, just seemed like a spot fest. Like, it was really nice, and we got to see some things that we never thought that we would see. So that aspect was really dope, but I have to go with Charlotte versus Rhea. I think this is the second straight pay-per-view that I've, put them as my favorite match and it's no bias at all it was just a tremendous match while the first few matches of the car really were just kind of a means to an end um this one was really great storytelling between two of the best women in the business right now and I think that even though Charlotte walked away as the winner which as a fan I'm happy about I think that Rhea went out in a way that didn't make her look weaker I think that shows she's still a badass it's just her knee got messed up and Charlotte went back to her dirty ways, and they put on a hell of a match, which is what both these two women are capable of doing. And I'm excited to see how it builds from here, um, and excited to see how this rain plays out for Charlotte. Uh, next on my favorite moment, there are a few, um, but I think kind of going back to the Raw Women's Championship, it, it's a toss-up between two. The Riptide that got countered into the DDT was freaking sick. Um, I can't say personally that I've seen it before, but because I saw it, I'm like, okay, now I only want to see that happen again. It was really amazing just because Rhea Ripley has had some great uh, matches with people. I think this is the first time I've seen that counter happen before, and it was a great way to execute what was already a great match. And then also up there with Charlotte flipping off the fans because – I was literally just texting somebody, like, as this happened. I was happy to have fans back. But then, of course, the We Want Becky chats came. And it was like, see, this is why 
fans can be a bit of a nuisance because it's like just enjoy the greatness that's in the ring in front of you like charlotte and real like i mentioned are two of the best why are you clamoring for somebody else who you don't even know if they're going to be in action anytime soon yes she's in the building but that doesn't mean that she's going to be working and i think that i'm happy that they shut up after a while but like i can totally understand the frustration of charlotte when i'm trying to put on a great match for the first time in months and you guys aren't appreciating it so I felt that. I felt Charlotte on that one. Um, next up, increased and decreased stock. For me, um, in terms of increasing stock, I got to go Big E. Congratulations to him. Um, after, it seemed like he was going to get a push when he was an Intercontinental Champion. Honestly, things kind of slowed down a bit for him. And it was questions of if he was going to be able to get back to where he was. And today showed that he can. And he did. And while there were other guys in this match who I felt like could have won it, I mean, Big E is a great selection. I'm excited to see which champion uh, he goes after. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see him as uh, Mr. Money in the Bank just because there's so many different avenues that you can have him go. Uh, next up, decrease stock. Excuse my French, but fucking Peacock. I already don't like Peacock. I already think it is a pain in the butt. It is so frustrating to like try to maneuver things. Like, don't get me started on when I'm trying to pick a paper. You're gonna have to click a fucking season as opposed to what year I want to watch. Like, it's I don't like WWE on Peacock. But what you're not going to do is have this pay-per-view, Money in the Bank, which is one of my favorites, and you're gonna have it glitched out for a good amount of time too like in my mind i was like okay if it glitches out during the entrances for the men's money in the bank all right whatever long as it's back on once the match starts and a freaking course it wasn't and it was glitching throughout the match like i feel like if you spend a billion dollars on something you're not gonna mess it up you're not gonna have all these stupid problems that a lower rate company should have but peacock had that problem and it really took me out of the first part of the Money in the Bank just because I felt like I was already missing something because it was so damn glitchy. So, fucking Peacock. Decreased so much stock. And if WWE could be like, hey, we're not doing this anymore. This is ghetto. We're going back to doing our own thing. Um, that would be fine. But I feel like con they're contractually obligated to stick with it for the next few years, but all I'm saying is, no. Uh, all right, my... um. What I would have done differently, my one booking decision. So, like I said, 99% of the show, it was a fairly innocent one. Originally, I was going to say AJ and almost dropping the titles just because unless you're bringing up new tag teams, I mean, who are you really going to have them go against? But then Johnny Boy came out. And my one booking decision is I would have left Johnny Boy's old ass at home. I will tell anybody who thinks I hate John Cena, which I'm not going to lie. Post-2012, John Cena is one of my least favorite wrestlers. But I used to be the biggest John Cena fan. Loved John Cena, loved his stanky draws. He could do no wrong. However, that was 15-plus years ago. That was when I was a child. That was before so many new stars and new talents came and showed that wrestling has evolved. This is before Johnny Boy took his behind to Hollywood and tried to pull a rock. This is before he his wrestling abilities began to diminish. This is before he was past his freaking prime. And so now, 2021, there is no need for John Cena in the WWE. It's just not. And I understand fans are back and you're excited and you want to get a money grab. He's doing all these movies. He just did Fast and Furious, blah, blah, blah. But realistically, in the state of the WWE, bringing back John Cena is the issue that encompasses WWE for the past few years. Bringing back part-timers rather than pushing new stars, which 
hurts the company because it hurts in terms of like keeping newer stars making them want to stay there and it hurts because you're putting great talents in jeopardy like for example bray wyatt last year or the fiend losing to goldberg nobody freaking needed that and it turned to be a dud anyway because goldberg is a dud and now you're saying apparently Goldberg's supposed to be coming back. We now have John Cena coming back. And you know he's not seriously going to be taking it seriously because he's focused on Hollywood now. WWE is not a priority for him. And while I'm sure he still loves the business, the business does not need him. The WWE has outgrown John Cena. And so because of that, don't need it, don't want it. I wish he would have stayed home. And all I'm going to say is Roman should beat him at SummerSlam, I would say he should squash him, but realistically, we all know that's not going to happen. So I'm just going to leave it at he needs to beat Cena. Cena rides off into the sunset, retires officially, goes into the Hall of Fame, does not have another match. And while this may seem like I'm picking on John Cena, I feel this way about a lot of old wrestlers. I feel this way about Shawn Michaels, and I love Shawn Michaels. I felt this way about Undertaker. I love Undertaker. Well, that's a lot. I don't love Undertaker, but I respect the hell out of Undertaker. Kane, um, cats like that. There are wrestlers who have done so much for this business, but that does not mean you have to keep coming back. So, stay home. Um, my WTF moment was actually Nikki Ash winning. I wasn't really expecting that one. Um, I really felt like it was like a really limited pool as to like who could actually win. And I guess, yeah, Nikki, Nikki just... Uh, she scurried uh, on the radar for me. I was not thinking about her actually winning this match, but she did. And would it have been my pick? No, but I mean, it, it's something different. I don't see her taking it off of Charlotte. And if Becky comes back, I damn sure don't see her taking it off of her. I know for a fact she better not take it off Bianca. So, but I mean, hey, I'm telling you guys this now because Brock Lesnar didn't know when he was money in the bank uh, holder. You got a year to cash in. So a lot can change over the course of a year. So we'll see how that shakes out. And in conclusion, my show grade, and I give it an A minus. Was every result perfect? No, but I feel like the show did its job. It was a great reintroduction to fans, a great way to showcase the abilities and talents of everyone. I think that everyone on the card got their chance to shine. I really don't think that there was really a loser tonight. Like, if you lost a match, that's one thing. But you know what I mean. Like, I don't think that anybody really, like, decreased their stock even if they lost because everybody gave a really valiant effort besides Kofi Kingston. But, I mean, I just call that great booking because that's how they should have been booking Bobby Lashley. But that's neither here nor there. So, like, even then, like, I don't think anybody really took a major blow. And, like I said, I don't totally agree with every result of each match. But I do think that, overall, the show did its job. It was a great reintroduction of fans and – I think that it set up some interesting storylines um, to go into the future. But that is my recap of Money in the Bank 2021. Thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, please be sure to check out the xreport.net. I repeat the xreport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow export writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast and our YouTube channel entitled The X Report. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time.